with you all this morning. Uh, man, it is good to be worshiping. And uh, can I just tell you all how much I love this family? Y'all are like, yes, please, appease us, <laughs> all right? Uh, flatter us here. Uh, for real, I really love uh, the, the family that God is bringing together here uh, called The Well, the things that God is doing uh, in our church body, in our midst, the, the ways in which he's kind of orchestrating uh, uh, men and women together to really make much of his name is super encouraging to me. When I was uh, even writing this sermon, I was uh, at a coffee shop and saw like six people, hey, what up though? All right. Uh, saw like six people that I knew, and uh, man, it was really encouraging just to be able to, to, to be there together and to think about like church planter, right? Like up giving announcements. There are people that are ready to be sent into the nations, kind of in our wing, ready to go out. Uh, even last week uh, in, during our gathering, we saw three people give their life to Jesus and come to know him for the first time. I love that that got that much uh, a pr- praise. That's awesome, for real. Uh, two more people were uh, interested in the faith, and uh, on Monday, we had 42 people at our covenant community class what right like that's crazy okay it's really cool so uh, God is just doing such a great thing but kind of within all of that friends like he's building together this body this family he's kind of orchestrating these uh, men and women to, to to be able to love each other well and I know I feel so loved from our family and from the people that are here and so man I love you guys uh, we say that every week but I really mean that like man I'm really thankful for what God is doing here in this body I'm just excited Now that all that mushy stuff is over, we're talking about idols today, all right? So have fun. Uh, We're finishing up our series called Fully Alive, and we're looking at what does it mean to be fully alive with Christ? What does that look like? How do we begin to really thrive in our intimacy and our relationship with Jesus? How do we come alive in who he is? And throughout the past four weeks, we've heard from four different people uh, about what they think it means to become fully alive in different ways in which God has orchestrated that for us and in us as we see in the word and so we're going to conclude the series today, and uh, if you missed any of those past ones, maybe you can go check them out online. The bad boys were fire, all right? So you can go find those there. But um, what we have not looked at yet is really how sin can so often steal our joy in Christ. And so we've looked at our calling. We've looked at uh, 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 this, this relational aspect that God has put us in. We've looked at all these different things, but we have not looked at how the thief can steal and kill and destroy, as we see uh, even in John 10.10. 10. So we're going to kind of focus on that today through idolatry. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to jump around just a little bit, but we're going to begin in John 10.10. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers are ready to hand them out. If you would just slip up your hand, they would love to give you a Bible. And if you do not own a Bible, man, would you please take and keep that? That's our gift to you. We want you to have the word to be able to use it during the week. And you can also follow along on your smartphone. Uh, If you have the YouVersion app, uh, you can type in events uh, or click on events, type in the well Austin, you can follow along that way. Or you could take this link, it'll be here for a couple of minutes, and you can put that right in your browser, and you can follow along that way as well, okay? So, we want your eyes on the Word, we say that every week, and especially today, because the passage we'll be looking at mainly after John 10.10 10, uh, is a pretty obscure passage, and I think that God uh, will want to speak to us through that. And so, uh, let's begin, um, actually, in John 10.10. 10. And uh, I just want to read this verse. This was the, the, the base of our, our series as a whole. I want to kind of chop it up a little bit before we dive into this idea of idolatry. So John chapter 10, verse 10, it says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
Now, this verse, in really a lot of ways, is kind of split up into two different thinkings or two different veins of thought. There's, there's two ways in which the, the text is trying to steer us here in this passage. One of them is kind of a, a, a negative concept. The thief, they steal, they kill, they destroy in a lot of ways. And then one of them is a positive concept. And Jesus comes to give life, give it abundantly. So you see these two different veins of thinking here. And really, the thief robs us of our vitality, and Jesus wants to give us our vitality. And the theme is really kind of death and life, which in a lot of ways is actually the backdrop of all of Scripture. If there are things that bring death, there are things that bring life, and the thief comes to steal, and the, the Lord comes to give, right? Now, many people in this context think that the thief is actually talking about Satan, and while Satan is indeed a thief, the context of John 10.10 10 actually says, man, anything that comes in the door and that steals or kills that is not of the Lord is actually a thief. And so it is not just our enemy, Satan, that is a thief, but man, friends, can we be honest? We sometimes are our biggest enemies, right? Like, like we can rob our, our own joy. We can steal from ourselves. We can really destroy ourselves and lie to ourselves and not speak the truth of the gospel in and over our hearts. We are often our greatest enemies. Nobody lies to you as much as you lie to you, right? And this is just a thief that, that we end up stealing what God wants to bring. And so uh, the concept in John 10.10 10 is really also highlighted in probably two of the most other famous passages uh, throughout all of Scripture. Really, they're kind of the, the law passages, the, the way in which we are supposed to live. And that is the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. And then Jesus gives the Great Commandment in the New Testament. And I want to look at that because it's essentially this verse as well. They'll both be on the screen. But Exodus this chapter 20, verse 3, it's just a very simple verse. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the first of the Ten Commandments. As God is saying, here's how you should live out, right? It says, man, have no other gods. This in a lot of way is like the thief. These other gods, they come in, they steal, they kill, they destroy. So I don't want you to have those other gods before me. They do not give you life, right? And then in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, you see this teacher or this religious leader saying to Jesus, hey, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And so you got to get the other one. If you love God, if you come to Jesus, then he comes and he wants to give you abundant life. Don't have false gods. They are thieves. But worship the true God, for he is the giver of life. Josh talked a couple of weeks ago about how all of God's commands are actually for our joy. They are for our benefit. And so we can believe then that in these two commands, God lays them out because he's laying out for us what will give us most joy, most intimacy, most most vibrancy, most life, as we see even in John 10.10. And so idols, these other gods, as he goes into this idea of idol worship, and even the next uh, uh, verse there in Exodus 20, verse 4, these idols, they will come and they will rob us of life. They will steal and they will kill and they will destroy, whereas God gives it to us abundantly. God is trying to make you to be into whom he has created you to be, to give you life and life at its fullest. The problem is that many of us probably do not think that we have idols in our lives. Or even if we do, it's hard for us to conceptually grasp what does it mean to have an idol, right? And so if I were to ask us today, hey, how many of you in here are idol worshipers? You know, we'd probably get maybe half the room kind of slightly raising their hand. But as you think about it, you're like, oh, what does that mean, right? But if I were to ask us today, hey, how many of you in here struggle with sin? 
Well, about 96% of us would raise our hand, and the other 4% wouldn't raise their hand because they weren't listening to me. They were checking Facebook real quick or something, right? Like all of us, we all struggle with sin, okay? We know that. And so this is what idolatry is. The idea of idolatry is very simply something that you worship or you place above God himself. Have no other gods above me or before me, and anything that you place above God is actually an idol. And so anything that runs your affections, your time, your effort, your money, your emotions, your attention, your commitment, any of those things are actually idols if they are placed above and beyond, if they have greater value in your life than God. You follow him? And so all of us then will probably, if we're honest, have a lot of idols, right? I remember very, very clearly when this concept kind of made most sense in my mind. I was uh, in India on a mission trip and we're traveling through this kind of village, and uh, it's uh, uh, out in the kind of like a rural area, I guess. And so there's just a couple of houses every, you know, 500, 1,000 feet or so. And while we're going through, I kind of see in the distance there's this man, and he's standing like in the middle of this field just like this. And I legitimately thought it was a scarecrow at first because it was kind of awkward looking, but it looked like a real scarecrow. And I was like, this is creepy, you know. And as we go up on it, I realize like it's an actual human being. Right? And he's just standing there, just like this. Okay? And as I'm looking, there are probably about 10 to 12 monkeys that are like crawling all over this man. Okay? Like little like tree monkeys. They're like literally swinging off of his arms and crawling on his head. And it's like crazy looking. And so all of a sudden I'm wide awake, right? And I'm looking and what is happening here, you know? And so I look over to our translator uh, who's from India and I said, man, what? what is going on there, right? Like, what, what's happening? And they said, oh, well, uh, oftentimes they will go and they will worship the, the monkey god because monkeys have all this kind of joy, this energy. And so uh, as the monkeys kind of swing for them, they hope that they receive joy, they receive energy. Usually you go to it if you need comfort. And I remember thinking, how stupid, <laughs> All right, how stupid can you be? And me and my judgmental self is like literally uh, riding. I already am having a hard time because the food's spicy, and your boy was coming from the Midwest at the time, so I wasn't used to spicy food yet. All right, and I was like, man, this is, this is really like dumb. And here I am, I'm judging. And see, I'm thinking I'm better than this guy because I don't worship monkeys, which, like, real talk, I don't worship monkeys, right? That's not a thing I've ever struggled with, okay? And then I felt like God very, very, very plainly said to me as I'm sitting there, hey, no, no, you, you do the same thing, right? See, this guy, when he wants comfort, he goes to the monkeys and hope that they give him comfort. But you, when you want comfort, you don't come to me. You go to a metal box that projects images and find comfort there. You are also an idol worshiper. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, I do the exact same thing, Right? See, when I want comfort, I don't do the maybe slightly harder work of coming to the God who promises to give all comfort, but rather I go to this little metal frame called a TV and I sit down in front of it and I begin to, in a lot of ways, worship as I let it wash over my anxiety or wash over my, my fear or wash over my discomfort and I begin to be comforted by this thing called a TV. I am a monkey worshiper in a very, very, very similar way. No amens to that? That's just me up here talking, right? 
Like, don't we do that too? Don't you do that too, right? Anything, anything that you put above God to satisfy you, to give you life, to bring you comfort, to bring you joy, to, to lift you up, to feed into you, those can be idols. TV at the time was one of mine, right? The effort that it took to find uh, this intimacy in God, I didn't want to do it. And so I took the little bit easier route, but the far less satisfying route of finding it in television. Idols are not just physical gods that we craft and create, nor are they just physical monkeys or a physical TV, but really they're anything that we place above God. And so maybe for some of us, it's something like alcohol, right? That we all of a sudden, we, we can't take the stress of life. And so rather than going to God who promises that he will actually be the one that lifts up our burdens, we just go to alcohol so that we can forget our burdens. See, this isn't satisfying. This isn't a a life standing. This isn't a a healing. God can actually heal, but we take the slightly easier route, and then all of a sudden that becomes idolatry. Or maybe for some of us, it's relationships, right? We place the burden of Messiah upon somebody else, usually a significant other, and we want them to save us from our problems, from our emotional problems, from our our, our fear of, of whatever it may be. And we begin to place that burden of Messiah on them, and we go to them, and we make our idol another human being, right? Or maybe even for some of us, a, a potential spouse or a potential friend, and we begin to think that that's what will satisfy. If I, if I just get that, then I will finally be who God has made me to be. I will be satisfied. And so our idol then is a human, right? Or maybe it's a sports team, right? You hoot and holler and cheer and get worked up on Saturday watching your college football team. And then you come on Sunday and the song's playing and you're like, great are you, Lord. Am I just talking to myself again? Right? Do we not do this, friends? Right? Like, it's okay. We're in church, okay? I want you to be okay with this. You are an idol worshiper, just like I am. And it is hard for us not to do that, for we were people that were made to worship, but when our eyes are not fixed on God and, 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 and a God who allows to, to stir up all of our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, as Jesus said in the great commandment, he can actually satisfy all those things. But when we don't go to him, we will go to something else. We are worshipers by nature. And this is why we have to be careful because this means we can make anything and everything an idol. See, the tricky thing about idolatry is that it usually isn't blatant. In fact, what usually happens is we kind of take something that's actually a really, really, really good thing. And then rather than allowing it to be a really, really good thing, we make it the ultimate thing. You tracking with that? Right? And so we we take this and we make it more than what it is. St. Keller, I mean Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, he says this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, we think idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything we serve or anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. And so alcohol, relationships, sports teams, all those things I just mentioned, like, like none of those are bad, right? Like, like don't feel bad for rooting to the, for the Spurs, even though Chef Curry did them boys up, right? Like he's about to do them Rockets next series, all right? It's when these things turn ultimate. The girls are like, I have no idea what just happened. All right, it's all right. 
right? Like when all these things turn ultimate, like this is when we get in trouble, right? It's when we neglect going to God, we end up kind of turning to these things that they actually do not become what they promise, but rather the opposite. They become a thief that kind of steals and kills our joy, our vitality, our life in Christ. They want to take away what God is longing to give us, and we continually go back and we worship at the altar of these idols. This is why things like sex or power or money or careers or families or material possessions. That's why these things can be so dangerous, friends, because none of these things are bad in and of themselves. In fact, these things are awesome in and of themselves. However, they are not ultimate in and of themselves, but we can easily find ourselves going and making these the ultimate things because they promise they can give us life, but in reality, they steal it from us. Only one person can truly give you life, and it's Jesus because he is the way, the truth, the life right? The only one that can truly give you aliveness to make you fully alive, to make you be who you were created to be is Jesus Christ, the King of glory. In fact, David Paulison, who's a prominent Christian counselor, he says there are essentially four main idols. He calls them source idols or root idols. And they'll be on the screen here, but they are power, comfort, approval, and control. Now, all of us, when we're wrestling with our idolatry, we always kind of fall in one of these categories. And so power, a longing for influence or recognition, right? Control, a longing to have everything uh, go according to my plan, Comfort, a longing for pleasure or ease and approval, a longing to be accepted or desired. So many of the things that we are chasing at their core actually find their idolatry in these things. And so, for example, one person may struggle with lust because they really, really want comfort, right? They want this pleasure or this ease or this intimacy in some ways. And so they feel like, well, man, if I have this person, then maybe I will finally get that pleasure that I am longing for. And what they are looking for is just that. It's pleasure. It's comfort. And that's why they are lusting, right? However, another person may really struggle with lust, the exact same sin, but it's because they're seeking approval. They long to be desired or accepted or shown that they are worthy or valuable. And so what happens is, is that they look at somebody, they place intrinsic value on that person. Oh, this woman's so beautiful. Oh, this guy, I bet he'd be such a great husband. Oh, this girl, like she really makes me feel alive. And, and we begin to place a value on them that we ourselves have placed on them. And then if they return that value to us, it makes us feel more awesome right? Like how twisted is that, right? But that's literally what we do, right? And, and as an approval-seeking man, as somebody who this is my main idol, I feel that, that all of these sins that I struggle with, really they find their root in this desire, honestly, to be worshiped or to be like God, which was the lie in the garden that Satan gave to Adam and Eve. You will be like God, right? And so we start looking for this approval. One person may want to be famous because they want power. They want this influence and recognition. And in fact, they may be willing to have people not like them so that they can gain this. For them, approval is nothing. They just want this power, this recognition, this, this people to be able to see who they are, right? Another person, they want to be famous because they want people's praises, and so they may be willing to even give up some power or to give up some control just as long as people like them and on and on and on. You following me? My hope is, is that already you can begin to identify, man, here's kind of my source idols within this. Here's where I frequently struggle with. In fact, if you have not been thinking about it, I would encourage you right now to look and to say, man, where's your source idol at? 
where are you so tempted to kind of place things above God, right? Because my hope is, is that you will see how within this, you continually break the first commandment. And even within this, that you would begin to see how these things are actually a, a stealer, a killer, a thief of your joy, of your being fully alive in Christ, your, your fullness, your happiness in him. I hope that you begin to see that in some ways. In fact, recognizing that there's even a thief is honestly of primary importance. Jesus tells this parable uh, in Matthew. He says that uh, if you knew the hour that a thief was going to come in and rob your house, then you would wake up at that hour. You'd be ready for the thief, and you'd be ready to tie him up so he couldn't rob your house, right? Or if we're in Texas, the parable would be like you'd be sitting with a shotgun there, right? Not in Austin, though, right? You'd be sitting, I don't know what you'd be doing in Austin, but, right? That's the parable, right? If you knew when the thief was going to come in, then you would be ready for them. Friends, if you know that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and there is a thief, and he shows himself in so many different ways through the world, through Satan, through our own flesh. If we recognize there's a thief, we'll be more awake and ready to bind that thief up so it cannot steal the joy that God longs for us to have in Christ. Amen? This is what we have to recognize. In fact, John Calvin, a, a 16th century reformer, theologian, he says, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us, even from his mother's womb, a master craftsman of idols. And so can you see this in your life, right? The thief will rob you of life. These non-ultimate things, when you make them ultimate, will never satisfy you in the way that you think they will satisfy you. Just like the serpent in the garden who lied to Adam and Eve and says, no, 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 there's more life to be had. Man, these idols will come and they will steal paradise right out from under you, just like the serpent did there. And if we allow these idols, these things we place before God to continue to reign in our heart and in our life, they will steal from us. Friends, what are you idolizing? What do you think will bring you life and joy more than God? What if God took away, would you be utterly devastated that he removed that in your life and you would feel like I'm no longer able to live because he removed that from me? What is it that you are idolizing? There's a beautiful story in the Bible that actually highlights this, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Because if it's true that we're idolaters, and if it's true that idols rob us from life, then what do we do, right? Like, like how do we kind of overcome this idolatry? And that's what we're going to look at the rest of the morning. So turn to 1 Samuel 5. And as you're turning there, this is a, a very peculiar story, to say the least, uh, but it's packed with a ton of truth for us. And I want to read the story as a whole because it's going to guide the rest of our morning. And how is it that we kill these source idols, these root idols in our life? For context, one of the things you'll hear a lot come up is this phrase, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is where the glory of the Lord decided to dwell in the Old Testament. Okay, So there was a physical ark, and God's presence was there in that ark and with that ark. And so this is what the context is. So 1 Samuel chapter 5, picking it up in verse 1. It says, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in its place. But when they arose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground. You know what they said? Why does this Dagon thing keep falling down? <laughs> that was a pastor joke if there ever was one, right? 
that are going to fall in face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lain, cut up on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the household of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And, terif- and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and his territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. And so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And so they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people at Ekron cried out, they're trying to kill us, (laughs) right? Is what they ended up saying, right? They have brought it around, the ark of God of Israel, to kill us and our people. All right, they started tripping, really, you know. And so they sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, so that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was heavy there, and the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is the very interesting word of the Lord, right? And so what do we see here? Well, firstly, notice that throughout the whole story, none of the Philistines actually turned toward God. You see that there, right? None of them. None of them turned toward God. If they had turned toward God, then he would have saved them. For anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, the scripture says, will be saved. None of them called upon the name of the Lord. In fact, they were so engulfed in their idol worship that they blamed God rather than turned to God. Hello. Is that not us? (laughs) Right? We too in our worship of our personal comfort or our desires to have control over our lives, when God begins to remove that from us, do we turn and worship God and call upon his name or do we begin to get mad at God and blame God, right? This is what the Philistines are doing. We can too, rather than turning toward God, become angry at God, wanting our idols over God because we are idol worshipers. Notice the tragic line there in verse 11 Right? In fact, we can bring it up on screen if you can. In verse 11, it says, send God away. Send it away. Let him return to his own place. Right? Let God return to his own place. This is a tragic line. This is the consequence of following our idols. For we too can often utter lines just like that. Right? Gosh, let God stay in his place. I want to run my life. I want to do what I want to do in my life. See, they thought that God was killing them. In reality, it was actually their idols that were killing them. God was just exposing the emptiness of their idols, right? And they thought it was God that was actually killing them, but it's really their idols that were stealing, that were killing their joy, their abundant life, their vibrancy in Christ. And you may be in here today and think that God is against you, friends. And I want to tell you, the scriptures make very plain that, man, that is not true, right? If anything, the Lord's hand may be heavy upon you because in his grace, he's trying to show you that the idols that you're chasing do not offer you life. And that's what he was doing to the Philistines. His hand was heavy upon them, trying to show them the idols that they were worshiping. They did not offer them life, right? But if they had turned to God in this discipline, because God disciplines those whom he loves, they would have been saved. They would have realized that what their hearts were actually longing for was what the God of Israel was able to give. And this is true in our lives too, right? Secondly, note in verse 8, 
It says, what shall we do with God? All right, with the ark of the Lord. They thought they can control God. They could do what they wanted with God. Why? Well, because they can control their idols, right? They could do whatever they want with their idols because their idols were something that they made. So they can kind of control it as they please. And the same is true for our idols. Idolatry kind of makes you assume that you can do whatever you want with God because, man, that's what you could do with your idols, You crafted them so you could do what you want with them, but you did not craft God. In fact, God crafted you. He should do with you as he pleases, right? And all of a sudden, we begin to see this desire for control keep up, right? Thirdly, like, can we go back to the scene in the temple there? I I love that scene, for real. It's like just such an awesome scene to me, right? I love the imagery here. They kind of thought there was more power in their God in verses 3 and 4, right? And so they set it up right there, and God almost is like a showcase, daggone probably hanging over the Ark of the Covenant, thinking that, man, here's our power. And then all of a sudden, it, it falls down. They try to resurrect it. It falls down again. It's head chopped off, right? Man, why? Well, because when your God is little... There's no fear, there's no awe of God. See, what God began to do was show how freaking huge and big he was, that he was so much larger than their little tiny God that they were worshiping, and he began to invoke awe and fear in them, which should make us begin to see the glory of our God and that we do not serve this tiny God. But when we worship our idols, we do not see how big God is. And so we do not have awe or fear or wonder or majesty. We are not ready to worship because our God is this tiny little thing that fits inside the box of our three-pound brain and mind. And that's what we think God is. And God begins to blow that picture out the water, right? He's so much bigger than that, okay? They weren't thinking high enough of God because idolatry makes you shrink God down to be this little manageable thing that you can control because you craft your idols with your own hands or with your own mind. Tracking with that? And so this is what we need to realize. In reality, right, these idols that we craft actually bend to our will, but our God does not bend to our will, but rather he bends us toward his will, which is for our good. The God is this big God. In fact, do you see what the text is showing us? It's that three out of the four source idols or root idols that we named are actually here in the verse. In fact, if you go to the next slide, it's on there. In verses three through four, they want this power over God, right? But God shows, no, 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 he's way more powerful. In verse eight, they want to control God. What should we do with God? How can we control him, right? In verse 11, they want comfort. They're being afflicted. So rather than turning toward God, they push God away because they would rather want comfort than finding out who this God truly is. And in fact, the only reason that the Ark of the Covenant was there in the first place was that in chapter three, Eli, the priest, was seeking the approval of his sons over the the approval of God, and that made the ark of God get lost in the first place. And so all four of the source idols or the root idols we can see in this text, right? This is what happens when we begin to worship idols. We no longer feel, experience, see the power, the majesty, the awesomeness, the ability to save that our God has. We only see these short, fleeting, tiny little idols that we made. And so in this ancient example, we have an example in our present modern day lives, have no idols before me, all right? Your heart, what it does is it pumps out idol after idol after idol after idol. I mean, how many times have y'all heard me mention my idol of approval, right? Over and over and over again. This is the idol that is in my life on and on and on. I can't tell you how many times I'm writing a sermon and I think about what y'all would think about me rather than what the Lord would think about me. 
How pathetic is that, right? Because what happens is, is that then when there's something hard to say, I begin to want to cheat over and begin to want your praise more than God's praise. But don't you see how that would make me a slave? Because then I would become totally engulfed in whatever y'all's opinion was about me rather than believing that the God of the universe who has called me son, who has called me beloved, that he's already pleased in me. I begin to try to seek your approval so that you can lift me up on this pedestal and I become a slave to your opinion. And I love y'all, like I said at the start, but look, your, your emotions are fickle, right? Just like mine are, right? Why would I submit myself to that sort of approval? And yet here I am struggling with this, right? Josh, a couple of weeks ago when he preached, said he was coming up with them icy shoes, right? But he wanted you to think about him and to, to like, like, man, this is a, 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 a source of, of discomfort. It's idolatry, friends. It does not give you life. It steals, it kills, it will destroy you. And if you do not recognize the thief in your life, man, it will undo you in so many ways. Why did I tell you that? Because I want you to know, friends, you're not alone, okay? If you're sitting here like, gosh, I have all four of these idols, right? It's okay, friends. You're not alone. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that your heart is a, what, temple, and we in our temple produce dagon after dagon after dagon, idol after idol after idol. And our job is to take the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord, and begin to put it there in our hearts, in our temple, so that those idols may fall down and worship. See, kids, also, another thing I thought of, right, is just a great source of where your idolatry is. As for some of you, your kids, they may uh, uh, kind of be stepping on your power, right? Like you tell them to do something, they're like, I'm going to do what I want to do right? And then all of a sudden you're ready to spank them. Why? Because they're disrespecting your power. I don't really struggle with that as much. But when my girl comes in 10 minutes before my alarm comes off, right? My secondary idol is a comfort idol. And you better believe homegirl better get back in her bed or whooping's being given, right? (laughs) And rather than seeing myself as a steward of my children, I begin to see them as encroaching upon me and they kind of knock down my idol. I'm like, you ain't doing that. And I set my idol right back up and tell them get back in bed, right? And don't you see, friends, how this idolatry, how it can kill your family, how it can kill your friendships, your careers, your joy, your very life in Christ, When you continually resurrect those idols, it will destroy, right? It will destroy you in so many ways. So what do we do? If we're idolaters, which I think all of us in here are, if we have these issues, these problems, then what do we do? How do we overcome it? Well, this text, along with John 10.10, along with the great commandment, it actually all gives us the answer. Continually place God before your sorry, pathetic, man-made, non-eternal, mortal gods, and they will bow down and they will worship him because they are not stronger than our God. The idols that you have in your heart are not more powerful. They are not better. They are not more beautiful. And so when they get before God, there is no choice for them but to bow down and to worship because our God is a lion. We just sang that, right? Our God is strong, right? And all of a sudden, these false gods will begin to bow down to the will of our God, and their heads will be chopped off, and their arms will be chopped off, right? I'm about to fight in this joint. This is fighting language, right? Why? Because God is fighting for a position in the temple of your heart. Do you place him there? Do you see him there? Do you force your idols to bow down before the God of the universe, for this is what he wants for you, because he wants your life, friends. He wants you to come alive in him. 
And he knows all these other idols, they will only steal from you and you will be like the Philistines, where if you do not see the Lord, you will push God out of your life rather than bringing him close, not realizing you are pushing out life itself in the process. And he will not let your idols stay there. If you give him reign in your heart, your idols will bow down and worship. But we have to see God as bigger, as better than our idols. We have to place him there in the throne of our heart. See, in John 10, 10, the choice is not between life and lesser life. The choice is between life or death. You got to realize this is a real thing, friends. This is serious. This is all-out war. You need to be ready to put God on the throne of your heart because if you do not, it's not that you'll have lesser life. It's that you'll have death or life if you find it in Jesus. So we need to place him in the presence of our heart. Isn't it ironic, friends, that the tumors in this chapter? Oh, shoot. I didn't even tell you about the tumors, did I? Woo! All right, look. Okay, the tumors, right? Really, really awesome context. See, uh, Dagon was a fertility god, okay? So he was the, the fertility god they would worship to give them uh, fertile pregnancies and fertile harvest, just straight up, right? And so this is what was life for them. It was vibrancy, right? It was their, their economic system, have more kids, to farm more land, to get more crops, to make more money, to be more comfortable and have more power, et cetera, et cetera. And so Dagon, he was this fertility god. And so it says that they began to break out with tumors all over the place, okay? Now, the Hebrew word for tumor is actually much better translated as hemorrhoid. It's just the, the English context like to keep our Bible PG. There's a lot of provocative stuff in Scripture, right? So rather than making it R-rated, I'll kind of make it PG-13 rated, okay? They began to break out with hemorrhoids, hemorrhoids all over them. Enjoy your lunch today, right? <laughs> This is what God was doing, was showing, hey, this God, Dagon, that you kind of lift up as this powerful being, actually the very thing that you think is going to give you is actually destroying you. God began to expose that idol for what it truly was. This will not bring you fertileness. This will not bring you vitality. Only I will, God is showing, right? And he does this to our idols as well. If we let him take the throne of our heart, he will expose it for the lie that it is. And so your idols, they promise comfort. But in reality, friends, don't you see how they only bring you anxiety? See, you think making a little bit more money will make you a little bit more comfortable, so then you begin to strive and strive and strive to make a little bit more uh, money, and all of a sudden your anxiety starts to pick up, so it says work a little bit harder, work a little bit harder, and rather than bringing you comfort that it promised, it actually gives you the exact opposite. It gives you all this discomfort, all this anxiety, and you begin to run and run and run and run and run after an idol that will never satisfy. Your idols are lies. What they say they will bring you, they will not. They will steal it away from you. Right? Or maybe uh, you're like me, approval idol, right? But this idol only brings about fear because the more you submit to people, you begin to be worried about what they think about you and you have this fear about what they feel about you and you begin to submit to their emotions, their waves that are tossed around in the wind as we talked about earlier. And so in reality, rather than bringing you approval, they actually end up disapproving of you because you become just a coward waving around in the presence rather than leading them to life. Right? Your idols, they lie to you, friends. They don't give you what they promise. And this is why we need to continually place God before our hearts. Look at these three verses real quick. Psalm 84, verse 11, it says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold. 
Psalm 21.6 says, For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Psalm 16, verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so you may be wondering, man, how do I place God in the throne of my heart? How do I not worship these idols? How do I allow him to be who he is in my life? Well, friends, you just continually seek God. In fact, think about how many uh, uh, means of grace or, or means by which God shows you who he is that he's given to you in your life. There are all these ways you could place God before your heart. He's given you the Bible, right? Your manna, your daily bread that you can eat and see the glory of God. He's given you prayer that you may talk to God when you're feeling anxious, when you're feeling this, this desire for power, control, whatever it may be. He's given you worship. He's given you fellowship. He's given you serving others. He's given you sharing your faith. He's given you spiritual gifts and fasting and silence and solitude and, and communion and corporate worship and gratitude and on and on and on and on. Our God has given us so many ways that we may place him in the throne of our hearts. Why? Because God is not against you. He's for you. He knows your wiring. He's given you all these ways that you, he, you can seek him. Think about even the common grace of God, right? Like moving, blinking, breathing. All these things are gifts of God, right? Food is one of the ones that I think about, you know? I love food. In fact, y'all, I had a dang good mango yesterday. It was like the best mango I ever had in my life. And when you allow a mango to just be an awesome mango in and of itself, you allow it to kind of terminate on itself, then it becomes nothing more than an awesome mango. Praise God for that. But when all of a sudden you begin to realize the giver of good gifts, see, God could have just like gave us a little pill that we all eat and we get full, right? But instead he gave us something that we can enjoy and he gave us variety where you don't really like mangoes, you kind of like apples and, and another person's like, why are we talking about fruit? I want some steak or whatever it may be, right? And God has given us all this variety to taste, to experience this common grace as a way in which we begin to see the benevolence of our God and we can actually let it lead us to worship him. God has given you so many things that you may see him. In fact, the whole world is nothing more than a reflector toward God if you look at it through the right lens. If you begin to see that he is who he says he is in the scripture. And so God wants the throne of your heart, friends, the temple where, where God dwells, right? Even this Friday, y'all straight up, I was feeling this idol of laziness, right? I did not want to do what I needed to do. And so why? I'm kind of chasing my comfort, my secondary idol. I just want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, right? And as I began to, literally all I did was I listened to a worship song. I texted a bunch of dudes, hey, y'all, I'm kind of struggling with this. Would you pray for me? And then I read a little bit of the Bible, and then I was on fire for Jesus. And what happened? I placed God in the throne of my heart right before that day gone, right before that idol, right? And God punched that joint in the face, and it fell down, its head fell off, and I was ready to run for Jesus again, right? This is what we have to do, friends, because our hearts are idol factories. And over and over, you're going to produce an idol in 10 minutes, I'm telling you, right? How do you put God before the throne of your heart, friends? And this is where all of this becomes true because you may be thinking, well, man, how do I do that? I can't do that. You may feel anxious. Satan may be lying to you right now and trying to get you to say, see, you have a thousand idols, right? You're thinking of all these things. You may not feel worthy of God. And friends, nothing can be further from the case because the story actually point, points us to an even greater truth than what's here before us in the text. See, in this story, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is there, right? And God comes and he dwells in this temple and he cuts off the head of this enemy, 
You know, and a few years later, King David would actually come along, and he would see Goliath, this idol, this literal kind of physical God they worshiped, they thought would save their armies. And David would come with Goliath's own sword, and he too would chop off the head of the enemy. And all of a sudden, we see what Scripture's trying to point us to is this even bigger reality that one day the greater David, the greater Ark of the Covenant, Jesus himself would come. And Genesis 3.15 promises that he will crush the head of your enemy, of sin, of death, of Satan, that as Jesus comes and dies on the cross for our sin, that he actually gives you the ability to have him dwell with you in your heart and your idols, death itself, its head gets crushed and chopped off. Why? Because because Jesus is the greater Ark of the Covenant. He's the greater David. He is the head crusher, friends, who crushes all the idols in your heart where if you believe in him, if you see him for who he is, then he will sever the power and the control that your idols have over you. This is what our God does. In fact, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, I love this phrase. It says, for in him, who? In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. See, the Ark of the Covenant, God's fullness only dwelled in part. But in Jesus, God's fullness dwelled in whole. And the Bible says that if you believe in Jesus, guess who comes and dwells inside of you? The Holy Spirit. Jesus' gift to us, where all of a sudden the Ark of the Covenant is in our temple. And these idols that are in our temple can bow down. Friends, there is a battle for your heart. Are you giving it to our King Jesus? Or are you letting these idols reign? These things will never bring life, but Christ our Savior will give you life and life fully, and he will take those pathetic idols, and he will chop off their heads because God loves you, and he wants to be there because he is the one who gives you life. I pray that we would be a church that seeks him continually. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are a God that takes rule and reign and control, God, of our hearts. You are not weak. You are not passive. God, you are strong. And so where we are struggling with idols, God, where we allow thieves to come and steal and kill and destroy our vitality, God, would you reveal that to us in your graciousness even right now? And would you teach us how we can sit you as enthroned on our heart, God? God, give us the understanding of how to pray, how to fast, how to, how to read, how to fellowship, how to confess our sins, whatever it may be. All these means by which we can see you moving. Would you, would you teach us, God, how to do that? That we may keep you centered on our hearts, glorified in our minds and our soul and our hearts, Jesus. Help us to love you. Help us to love you. God, thank you that you are a God that longs to give us life. God, I pray for anybody who does not know you as God, for anybody that may be serving themselves or or other people or their jobs or their careers or these false idols, God, that you would reveal that to them. Would you show them even right now how you long to give them life and life fully, Jesus? God, I thank you that one day we will be with you where we will be comforted forever. There will be no more sorrow, no more tear, no more suffering because you will be with us and we with you and we will get what our hearts desire, comfort. We will get approval for you will look at us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant, I love you. 
God, we will, we will get power. We will rule over kingdoms and, and, and even judge the angels, the scripture says. And all these things that our heart longs for, they will be found in you one day, fully and forever. And even today, you begin to show us glimpses of that. Would you show us more and more glimpses of that, that we may be worshipers of you, our King Jesus. We love you, God. We thank you for loving us. Praise in your beautiful name. Amen.